0: Dead Poet Society've probably seen the movie. It's the story of a controversial English teacher, John Keating, at a uh, New England boys prep school. The story takes place sometime in the, in the 1950s. Uh, there comes a point where uh, Professor Keating or teacher Keating, is trying to just impress upon his young charges, minds and hearts the need to not, not, not just critique the lines of the poem but to feel the pathos, the passion, the, 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 the oomph, the angst of the poet. And so he, he reads this line from, from Walt Whitman to try and, and make the point. Actually, there's the verses there uh, in your quotes and notes. O oh me, of the questions of these recurring, Oh, of the endless trains of the faithless, of cities filled with the foolish, what good amid these, O oh me, O oh life? Answer that you are here that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on and you may contribute a verse. Keating pauses and then he he looks at his students and he says again that the powerful play goes on and, and you may contribute a verse. And then he asks the question, Gentlemen, what verse will you contribute? And that, my friends, is the question of the hour. What verse will we contribute to that great, powerful play that goes on? Uh, This is intended to be the first in a series on our church's new vision statement and the theological underpinnings as to what's going on there and where does that come from. You should see that there in your bulletin, the statement itself. Uh, The plan is, as I said, to just sort of take some time over the coming weeks to unpack this and just lay it before you. This is a a statement that um, was prepared by our, our vision team. You've been hearing a little bit about that off and on over the last several months. This is a statement that was prepared by those folks uh, Much, many hours of prayer and study and reflection and discussion. The statement was then presented, submitted, I should say, submitted to the session. The session has adopted it and endorsed it with all enthusiasm and now sets it before you for your consideration. This is a big step for us, uh, honing to clarify who are we. And what is God calling us to be and to do? This big step, though, with all steps, we take with God's confidence of God's care and His direction as well. The text we're going to read may seem curious to you, but I want to read it anyway, whether you're curious or not. Uh, Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. I'm going to read verses 1 through 17, which is, in fact, the entirety of Esther 4. If you have your Bibles ask you to follow along with me in your Bibles. This is the Word of God. And Mordecai learned all that had been done. Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went on into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. And many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of the money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these thirty days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself, that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go. Gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also hold a, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Did you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this record. These words that speak to the events of history, your dealings with your people, their responses, your grace, your power, your love, your mercy, your intentions and purposes in the often puzzling but always wondrous ways you work out those purposes. We, we know that you still work that you are still moving, still protecting, still purposing. We ask that you would help us to, to see, to hear, to understand, to live out. We can't, we don't have the, the ability to scale the heights of this passage. We don't have the lines to go down into the depths of the mind, to pull out its treasures. We we need you. We need you. We ask that you would be so gracious to us, even more than you already have been, to give us understanding and discernment and then to live these things out. We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen. Let me give you a little background uh, on the passage that we just read there from Esther 4. Some background on the book of Esther itself. Haman. Haman is... Uh, the king's most trusted advisor, and he has promised the king that if the king will but give to him, turn over to him, if you will, the fate of the Jews there in the kingdom, that uh, Haman would then be so kind as to put ten talents, an enormous amount of money, personally, into the king's treasury himself. Well, the king agrees to these uh, terms. He, in fact, uh, then Writes that an order that all the Jews would in fact be done away with, and Haman will oversee the project. Mordecai, Mordecai, in hearing about this, and it comes out in the, in the chapter we just read, is just grieving. Understandably, he himself being a Jew, is grieving just undone by the events that have transpired. But knowing that his cousin, whom he is younger cousin, whom he raised from childhood, is her, she is the queen. She herself is a Jew. Given the place in which she is, she is in a unique position to influence events. And so then Mordecai approaches his younger cousin and urges her to act. Esther. does not respond initially by just outright refusing. I don't think you'd want to say that. But she does respond in a way that, that's at least this much. She, she says to Mordecai, reminding him, that what he's asking her to do carries great risk, given the law of what's involved in terms of being invited and not being invited into the king's presence. Mordecai then responds and presses her, nonetheless, to do this hard but necessary thing. And he says to her, verses 13 and 14, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther, Esther, hear me. Do not think yourself to be so isolated from what's going on. So cut off from the rest of your people and the, what is about to befall them. Don't think yourself so isolated that this does not include you. Esther, don't think that because of your position and, and where you are that you don't bear some personal responsibility to get involved here and that there will not be consequences. Yes, the Lord will surely help His people. But if you fail to respond accordingly, if you fail to avail yourself to be an instrument in his hands in this situation, you will bear consequences, Esther. Esther! Esther! It might be. It might just be. This is why you are where you are. You know the funny thing about the book of Esther? God is not mentioned once. Do you know that? It's the one book of the Bible where God is not mentioned once. That's not to say he's not acting. That's not to say he's not present. He does not occupy the the center stage, but he is clearly behind the curtains. He, He may not be mentioned as a player, but he's the major player. And Mordecai seems to understand that. That's governing the assumptions upon which his exhortation is based. I mean, after all, where else would relief and deliverance of the kind he is describing here come from, if not from the Lord? Who else could mete out consequences to the queen if this was not the case, if there was not the reality of the true and living God? Um, Another thing, how else would he be able to speak of meaning and purpose and intent and significant and orchestration of events if the reality of God was not real. That assumption, well-grounded, that there are no accidents, that God always acts with purpose and intent, that assumption, that there are no accidents, is what drives this exhortation, pressing Esther... Gently but firmly, to examine her life, to examine how she got, where she got, to consider what's going on around her, to consider the events and what 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 has happened here and how might these things be intersecting to, to understand and to see, to open up her eyes to the reality that indeed God is working all the time, again with intent, with purpose. And that she would then respond to that and follow His leading to bow, to yield to Him. The same is true for us. That God is still working, purposefully ordaining every event in our lives. He calls us to recognize that and then to pursue those purposes with all humility and faithfulness. It's true for Esther. It's true for us. Now I want to break this down in two categories. Um, the first being having to do with who we are. Um, discerning the significance of who we are. Recognizing that whoever you are, whatever you are, whatever you're like, however you're wired, whatever, wherever you come down on the Myers-Briggs test, um, whatever your love language might be. All those things. God's behind that. You okay with that? You better be. You know who's behind it? God's behind that. And what's the significance of that? How do we deal with that? How do we wrestle with that? The, the significance of who we are and how he's made us to be. First Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's worth considering uh, there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 11. Uh, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing by the one Spirit. To another, the workings of... Miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each, to each one individually as he wills. Verse 18, skipping down. But as it is God arranged the members in the body. Each one of them as he chose. Skipping over to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. Is there any intentionality in God's working? Verse 7. So you are no longer. Excuse me. Ephesians. Oh, that's Galatians. Well, that's a good text, too, but that's not getting to what I want to say. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Who are we? That's what we're getting at. Who are we as individuals and even as individual churches? Who are we? If nothing else we see from these passages, and there's many others we could look at, that we indeed are gifted, every one of us, in unique ways, which then means we are unique in terms of who we are, which then means we're valued, valuable. Who made us this way? Who's behind that? Well, Paul makes it very clear. Christ is behind that through the Spirit. Christ is behind that through the Spirit, apportioning these things according to His measure. These are are His gifts to His people. These are expressions, manifestations of His grace to us, whether you acknowledge it or not. Who are we? Why are we the way we are? Who are we and why are we the way we are? That's worth considering too. Romans 12, beginning in verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, who are we and why are we what we are? Now, There's a degree to which you just can't answer that question in terms of why are you what you are? What does he have in mind? Because, of course, it takes a long time to figure out what you are, right, to to, to unpack that and to begin to discover how you've been wired and what you're more given to in terms of God's design and his intent, even once you think you've got a grip on that. It's it's difficult to know exactly what he's going to be calling you to and how he's going to be using you as as, as an instrument in his hand. So there's there's a lot here in terms of asking the question, why are we what we are or how we are? It's hard to get really at that, but there are some things we can know. We can know that he has intentions. We can know that he has purposes. Indeed, it would seem from what Paul is saying in Romans 12, He doesn't just have purposes and intentions. He has expectations. Didn't he say here that the one who's gifted in a certain way, made in a certain way, is to use them, right? There's an expectation that you would explore that, that you would run with that, that you would put feet on that and live that out. That then makes it a matter of faithfulness. Right? Will you be? Who he's called you to be, uniquely. It also makes it a matter of contentment. Are you okay with who he's made you to be, or are you so preoccupied with how he's made someone else to be? Um, stories told of a of a mother and her son who lived way out in in the, the woods and a. One day they were out walking, and a tornado came suddenly upon them. And uh, the woman, the mother, is holding on to this tree with one hand and holding on to her son with the other. And the winds come, and they're too strong. The son is taken away. And the woman, just understandably, just begins to wail, crying out to heaven. Oh, God, please, I can't bear to lose this boy. He's all I have. please. Bring him back to me, if you will, but bring him back to me. If you will restore him to me, I will serve you all my days. And the boy (laughs) plops down right there, hair a little messed up, a little bit dusty, kind of dizzy. But he's there, and the mother hugs him and just checks on him and pulls him back and hugs him and pulls him back. And then looks at him again and says, Lord, he had a hat. Now, I don't know why I like that story. It's a goofy story. But the reason I think I like that story is because of the easy dissatisfaction we have with the way God deals with us. How easily dissatisfied we are with his dealings with us. And in this case, who he's made us to be. Who has he made you to be? Who has he made you to be? He calls us to to listen, to listen to what we see here, to to believe what we see here, and and to run with that, to recognize indeed that He does have intentions and He does have purposes. And He calls us to, with humility but with faithfulness, pursue those purposes, every one of us. How has He gifted you? What are your strengths? What are the abilities that He has blessed you with? What are the desires that he's laid upon your heart? What burdens do you feel as you engage this world? what are the things that resonate within you more so than, than than your neighbor how has he made you who is he calling you to be it's worth contemplating and can, can I just ask this as well can you can you are you okay with that can you are you willing to rest in that are you willing to praise God for how he's made you an intj Myers-briggs that's me Am I willing to praise God for my INTJness? I'm not talking about sanctification and struggling with sin. I'm just talking about gift mix. You understand what I'm saying here? You never want to be satisfied with your sanctification and your struggles with sin. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about just who you are and how you're wired. Okay. Um, this applies to churches, too. Who are we? Christ Press, Clarksville, Tennessee. Who are we? Well, we used to joke um, not that long ago, back when we had even more OBGYNs in our congregation than we do now, that clearly God knew that we were going to have many expectant mothers in our midst. Which makes me wonder why we have so many psychologists now. (laughs) But that's another story. How has he gifted us? What resources, humanly speaking, What re- here, you are the resources. That's what I'm talking about. How has he made us? Who are we? That's the question worth asking. If we're to keep in step with the Spirit, if we're to really grapple with the reality that he has arranged things in an intentional way, not in a haphazard fashion, What does it mean to be faithful to that? What does it mean to walk in accordance with that? What does it mean to to respond to his purposeful intentions with that? Recognizing that there are many, it really is astonishing to me, considering we're not a big bunch, but yet at the same time, there's a great variety here. Many different callings, many different gift mix, many different personalities, many different abilities and experiences and and resources, and stages in life, and backgrounds, too. Think about where we've all come from. And I mean that geographically, which plays in, but also spiritually, too. We're mutts, but that's cool. Because who's behind that? God is. And the question is, why? What does he have in mind? What is he calling us to be and to do, given who we are in this unique place? What is he doing here? There are no accidents. There's no accidents. That you're here, and that I'm here, and that you're here, and they're here, and all those things. What is he doing here? He's calling us to recognize, again, that in every aspect of our lives, he is dealing with us purposefully, with intent, and he calls us to recognize that, respond to that, in humble, faithful ways, including even who we are as individuals and as churches. You with me? That's the first part. The second part's this. Not just who we are distinctly, but where are we? Who are we and where are we distinctly? Our God not only moves and places things in hearts, he also moves and places people. Some of us know that very acutely. When I was in seminary, I worked in what is called the Student Services Office. And one of the functions of the Student Services Office was to maintain the placement list. And the placement list was to be used by uh, fourth-year students who are, well, I shouldn't say that, seniors. Folks who were getting ready to graduate. And they were looking for, you know, what was going to be the next thing. And this placement list was, the, as best we could discern, the most current listing of all the openings within the PCA and then some other places as well. And we would find ourselves just kind of needing to remind these students who are preparing to graduate, especially as they just couldn't find something on that placement list that fit them or, or it just things didn't work out as they would check things out. But we need to remind them, hey, hey, God is the God of placement. Now that, that, that is just a tremendous encouragement. You know, when you don't know where you're going and you don't seem like you have anywhere to go, but God is the God of placement. It is also not just a matter of comfort and encouragement. It is a matter of comfort and encouragement, and also a matter of of brace, there's a bracing element too, when you've gotten there, and you're not sure you want to stay. God is the God of placement, and that's a sweet thing indeed. And we would all do well to remember that. All just just are you okay with that? That God's the God of placement? Can you rest in that? Can you be at peace in that? Adam, thrust from the garden, placed. Noah, set upon an ark and on his way on a, on a sea-going voyage. The first, I think. Um, Abraham, sent to a land that he did not know, placed, moved. Joseph, dragged off to Israel. I mean, excuse me, to Egypt. Didn't want to go. Didn't want to stay. Israel, positioned, placed as a nation uniquely among all, uh, in the middle of all these world empires of the day. Who's God? Who's God here? God is the God of, of placement. He chooses the where's. Not just the who, but the where as well. Not just who we are, but where we are. He's behind all of that. Well, where are we? That's a question worth asking then. If all these things be true, if he is the God of placement, where are we? Where has he placed us? Every place is unique. We know that. But where are we? And what is this place like? Who placed us here? Coming back to that again. Where are we and who put us here? Acts 16. Acts 16, verses 6 through 10. I just think this is the most amazing passage when it comes to thinking about principles of God's guidance and things like that. Uh, and they went, this is Paul and his uh, uh, companions, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia. This is the, uh, the second missionary journey. Having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night a man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I could only imagine, it has to be the case, that Paul and his companions at times had to remember the very things that Luke tells us here. Not just where they were, but who had put them where they were. And were they okay with that? Because you know they had other plans at one point. They had another itinerary at one point. Their Palm pilot had a whole other grid going there. It didn't work out that way. They had to remember not they had to know just they had to know just not just where they were, but who had placed them there and then to be at peace with that. They had not just moved on, they had been moved. They had been placed by Christ. And that was his grace, his gift to the people to whom he was sending them. But also, you can't help but add this to Paul and his companions as well. Where are we? And who put us there? And why are we here? What's up with this? Why am I here? Psalm 62. You read read this earlier. I just want to highlight the last two verses. Psalm 62, verses 11 through 12. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Romans. Romans 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Why am I here? Why are we here? He has purposes. He has intentions and they're good. We can't say everything about the answer. Can't answer all the questions we might have in terms of why. There's certainly a high degree. Just like we can't know everything exhaustively in terms of who we are and why we 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 are who we are. We can't understand everything and go exhaustively with why we are where we are. We can't know what it is he's calling us to. We can't know precisely to the nth degree what he's going to do with us and how he's going to refine us while we're here, but we can know some things. His intentions are good. His intentions are good, and he expects us, just like he expects us to explore the gifts, I would say he expects us to explore the place. To explore the place. Which makes it a matter of faithfulness. And contentment. Who's the God of placement? Are you okay with that? Can you live with that? Let me make this personal. Where has he placed you? Where has he placed you? Who are your neighbors? Let's get very practical here. Who are your neighbors? Where do you live? What is your mission field? Who sits by you in your classroom during the week? Who do you labor beside at the office or at the post? Or the post with an office. <laughs> um at home? Who are you married to? Who's behind that? Who are those children? Where did they come from? Where are you? Who put you there? Is this not a matter of faithfulness and contentment and calling? Now thinking about us as a church, as a collected body of individuals too. Where are we? Again, to be to keep in step with the Spirit, we need to recognize that He has done all this, put us here, at this place, at this time, for some reason. Okay, then we need to understand. Where are we? talked about this in the Inquirer's class last week. So those of you who are in there, you can just kind of check out for a minute. Um, Where are we? We're in the early 21st century Western culture, which is deeply given over to narcissism. That is to say, it's all about me. It really is, because it's just me, so it's all about me. Some of you have heard me say I have a niece who has a t-shirt that actually says that. Some of us believe that. And many of our contemporaries around us believe that, when you really when you look at their lives. They would never say that. Narcissism and relativism. It's not just all about me, it's all up for grabs. There are no standards, there are no rules. Whatever works is. Anything that worked that was true in the past was just true for the past. What's true for you is true for you. You understand? That's the age in which we live, folks. How does that affect, if we're living in that culture, how does that affect how we do ministry? It has to mean something. We're not just in the 21st century West. We're also in the South. Hey, the gateway to the New South, right? What's that mean? That means, among other things, that there is an echo, there is a memory, There is an imprint from a time gone by where there were agreed upon moral standards and guidelines grounded in the Bible. There's an echo. There's a, um, a memory, an imprint. But that echo, that memory is fading and faster than you realize. And in its wake is left a deep hunger for something real, for authenticity, for community, for connection one to another to answer the lonely aching of the soul. That's got to mean something in terms of how we interact with our neighbors. But hey, we're not just in 21st century Western culture. We're not just in uh, the gateway to the New South. We're in Clarksville, the Fort Campbell community, Hopkinsville, Cadiz, that's where we are, and just a little bit northwest of Nashville. What's that mean? Well, among other things, it means there's some variety here in this community because of how many different places people have come. It also means we we bear the blessing and the curse, the curse and the blessing of transience. What's that mean? In terms of how we do ministry in this context. It's got to mean something. You understand what I'm saying? God is behind all that. Beautifully so. God is orchestrating all that. And who knows, but that He has placed us here for such a time as this. Of course He has, because we're here. How else did we get here but that He placed us here in such a time as, as this? There's no, there are no accidents. And He's calling us to pursue these things with humility and faithfulness and wrestle with them. Esther's dilemma, the answer to Esther's dilemma She uh, responded to Mordecai, verses 15 and 16 of Esther 4. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa. Hold a fast on my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. This is a bold step. It was not a blind leap of faith, though. I hate that expression because that just is so antithetical to Christianity. Um, it was a bold step, but it was not a blind leap of faith. It was a step based on reality. That is to say that there is a God, and He's real, and He's working, and He loves His people, and He has purposes and intentions for His people, and He calls His people to respond accordingly. And so Esther acted based on those things. That's good. And God used that. How is he calling us to respond based on those same things? That he is orchestrating, that he is moving in all the who's and all the where's and how they come to play and all of that with us. This vision statement, again, uh, this vision team has prayed and studied and reflected and discussed numerous hours, submitted it to the session. The session now lays it before you, having fully endorsed it, and is asking you to consider it and pray over it over the coming weeks. We're going to be talking about the implications of what it just might mean. We believe that this is where God is leading us. And we believe that that will then, narrowing a focus, if you will, in terms of who we are and where he's called us and where he's placed us and how all that should flesh itself out, that should then lend itself to greater steps of boldness in the future. And people have a funny way of noticing such things. In the early 1740s, I believe, there was a, a vessel tr- uh, going across the Atlantic from England to Georgia. On board, of course, were mostly were English passengers, but a few German Moravians. Those German Moravians, they were Christians, and they were singing in the midst of a worship service, singing songs, didn't care who was listening. Just having a, a, just a wonderful service there in the hold of the ship. And this horrible storm came upon the ship. Threatened to just break it totally apart. The other passengers, all the Englishmen and women, screaming their heads off, panicking. These German Moravians kept on singing. Didn't miss a beat. At the end of the storm, one Englishman in particular asked one of the Moravians, Weren't you scared? No. God's God. He's in control. What about your women and children? Weren't they they afraid to die? No. God is God. He's in control. You know who that man was that asked the question? Charles, excuse me, John Wesley. John Wesley, who later proved to be one of the world's greatest evangelists. And the Lord used that instance of, of a group of people gripped by God's grace and intention and power and goodness for them, towards them. And they were then enabled, free, to be bold in the face of the most chaotic of circumstances. And God then worked. Can I just be so bold as to say this? May it be so with us. That we would really come more deeply to appreciate that God indeed has purposes and designs for us. And that they would then free us and impel us to take steps, individually but as a body as well. And know that God will take that and use that in shocking and surprising ways. Who could have known a Wesley would come out of that voyage? Who could know what could come out of 1230 Rossview Road? Let's pray. Lord, we know that you have placed us here For a time such as this with intent, all of us in every sphere imaginable, we thank you for your work then, in and through Esther, preserving the line, the Jewish people. Therein came Christ. Therein you kept your faithful promises to preserve that people, but not just that, to send a Redeemer. We thank you for your work then. We thank you for your work now. All things ordained and purposed. Who we are. Where we are. And we have a why to ask because of that. Without just, without just crying out in the dark, we know we can ask someone, you to, and together, why? And the, the answer may be greater than we can see. But we ask that you give us partial understanding even now. Oh, would you bless us. You have so much. Blessed us already. Would you bless us yet more? Give us unity in the direction and purposes and intents that you have for us and the steps that we take. In Jesus' name, Amen. As the ushers come.